We were sitting in an elders meeting about a month ago and the kind of experience that we're having here today was what God burdened on my heart. And, and it was a tension, to be honest with you. There was this tension between the word, which in a picture is solid, steadfast, firm, immovable, static almost, with the spirit, which is dynamic, which moves, which John 3 tells us, we can't tell where it comes from and where it's going and how it's going to move. And honestly, it was a tension inside me. You know, which one is it? And it's not a matter of either or. And I prayed there and I asked God for gatherings that, that finds that, and I don't even want to say balance because balance feels like it's somewhere in the middle, but the fullness of the moving of the Spirit in our gathering as well as the steadfastness and the solidness and the firmness of being grounded on the Word of God. Good morning. My, my name is Grant. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you didn't know, is my first time preaching as the senior pastor of this church. Now, well, maybe you should first hear the sermon before you decide if you're going to clap. Because this has probably been the worst week or two for me to prepare, to preach my first sermon as the senior pastor. I've been in the job for 39 days. I've made it. And everyone's been wonderful. The staff, the, the, my fellow pastors, the elders, the council, the people alongside me has been wonderful in making me feel welcome, making me feel at home and comfortable. But emotionally, we've been taking strain as a family. Uh, we, you, you may have heard, well, you heard early on that we moved into the manse on Saturday last week. And the week before that, the Monday, we were driving around looking for curtains and curtain rods, and which was a stressful thing in itself. <laughs> and we weren't finding the things that we needed, that we were looking for. And we were driving, and I say to Lenore, I feel irritable. And she said, oh, is it something I said? I said, no, it's not anything you said, and it's not even the fact that we can't find the things. I just feel irritable within my spirit. And we come home, and I share the same with Joel. And Joel, our 13-year-old son, says to me, don't you think it's just all the things, the changes that's happening in our lives? I'm like, okay, that was quite insightful. <laughs> the next day I have a meeting with Shane, and Shane points out, Shane is one of our elders, and he points out that the things you're going through, any one of them are of those, on those lists of, you know, most stressful situations you have in life. I was unemployed for four months. That can be stressful. I started in a new job, not just any job, quite a high-pressure job. I moved house with my family, and we had our first child leave the house. Any one of those things is stressful in itself. Um, four of them compounded in a short space of time is enough to make you tatty. <laughs> and then on Monday, so our daughter, for those of you who don't know, left to join on the 22nd of June, left to join YWAM. Um, and so she moved out of the house last week, Monday, we saw her for the first time since dropping at YWAM 11 days earlier. Um, and the reason we saw her was that she was at the driver's testing center in Ottery to get the driving license, and she got it. And this morning she's here with us in the service with her friend Ellie. 
Nice to have you with us. And we're driving back to drop her at Musenberg, and she tells us in the car that she was, they had a class. This particular subject of this class is what is the gospel? And she was so excited because the way the class was presented was that the gospel is more than just Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Now, Jesus dying for the, on the cross for our sins is the climax. That's the high point of the gospel. But she was so blown away and struck by the fact that the gospel is the story of God from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And it reminded me of this quote I saw, um, I think it was a year or two ago. Actually, in my preparation, I tried to find the source, the origin of the quote. I couldn't, so I'm just quoting it as anonymous. At least it's anonymous to me. The gospel is not merely the doorway through which we enter the Christian life, but the window through which we see all of life. The gospel is not merely the doorway through which we enter the Christian life or eternal life, but the window through which we should be seeing all of life. And today I'm going to be preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. For the past past few months, um, we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church in a city called Corinth. My colleagues have done an excellent job of showing from Scripture the good, the bad, and and some of the ugly things that have been happening in this church and that have been going on in the city. And the irony is, is that there are so many similarities to our city and to the modern day church that it's actually been quite scary. But they've also extracted a number of practical lessons that we can apply, that we can draw and apply to our lives even now in 2023. Why is it so applicable? Well, because the church in Corinth was a church with problems. Has any of you ever been in a church that has problems? <laughs> don't answer out loud. Eh? Sorry, don't. In each section, and you would have noticed this as they were preaching, in each section, Paul says what the problem is, and then he responds to the problem with a part of the story of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus. The gospel is not just moral advice or a recipe for personal spirituality. But it's an announcement about Jesus that opens up a whole new reality to us. And I say opens up because often we get stuck just at the door, getting through the door, and now we have eternal life. But we're not living the fullness of a gospel life. And First Corinthians is about learning to think about every area of life through that lens, through that window of the gospel, our relationships, our families, our community, our workplaces. And the gospel should permeate our beliefs, our values, our thoughts, our words, and ultimately our actions. And at its core, if you're going to fall asleep, wait for this part, then you can relax. At its core, the gospel is about love. At its core, the gospel is about love. A love that will deny itself and look out for the well-being of the people around me. Not just any love. God's love. God's love is at the heart of the gospel. Now, my sermon this morning is divided into three parts. And it's going to be, I'm hoping, quite easy to follow because at the top of the slide it will say part one. So you'll know where we are. 
part one is going to be a word to the church and specifically as it pertains to those who are in Christian ministry and service. Part two is going to be a word to those who are in Christian ministry and service. And then part three is going to be a word to us all. And spoiler alert, that's actually going to be the actual point of this chapter. So we're getting there. I must be honest. As I started preparing, this sermon didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to when I was starting. And you might pick that up at the end. When I was at seminary, we had an assignment to do for New Testament studies. And this assignment was to read 1,000 pages of anything New Testament related. So we could go to the New Testament section of the library and find anything, and you just needed to read 1,000 pages and record what you had read. Now, when you're at seminary, there's a lot of stuff you have to read. So you don't often get to read what you would want to read. When you get a chance like this to choose anything, you try and choose something that's going to be fun. And I found this book. There's a pic of the book. Epistles to the apostle. Now, if you know anything about your Bible, you'll know that we don't have any records of letters that were written to the apostle Paul. But what Colin Morris tries to do in this book is write fictitious, but historically, as far as he can, accurate letters to Paul, to which Paul then responds. And it's kind of similar to the analogy that Roland's been using of when you're listening in on a phone call, you can only hear the conversation from one person's side, but you can kind of intimate what the other person is saying. What Colin Morris tries to do is he tries to give us an idea of what was actually being asked. And when we read verse 1 to 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it seems as if the people in Corinth were questioning Paul's credentials as an apostle. And maybe even questioning if full-time ministers of the gospel should be paid for the work that they are doing. Or if they're entitled to some kind of basic conditions of employment. Notice how he starts the section with a series of rhetorical questions. And all of which require the answer yes. And he does this often. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Don't you agree that I am a free man? Don't you agree that I'm an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus our Lord? Aren't you the result of my work for the Lord? If I'm not an apostle to other people, at least I'm an apostle to you. You are the seal that proves that I am the Lord's apostle. This is how I defend myself to those who cross-examine me. In these verses, Paul basically gives his CV, his credentials, as proof or as evidence that he is a true apostle. But the one thing that stands out, what Paul describes as the seal of his proof that he's an apostle, is the fact that he is a disciple maker. Did you notice that? He says it at the end of verse 1. At least I am apostle to you. You are the seal. He says at the end of verse 1, aren't you the result of my work for the Lord? That seal that he talks about, seal in those days was kind of like a, a mark of quality assurance. So you could validate the authenticity of a document like a letter or of a product like wine by its seal. And Paul says, you are that seal. The fact that you are my disciples, followers of Christ as I follow him, is proof that I am an apostle. You remember many of the, the my fellow pastors have been talking about Acts 18, which gives us the backstory to what actually happened in Corinth. In Acts 18, we read how Paul spent 18 months in Corinth as a missionary, getting to know people, 
talking to them about Jesus. He started by discussing scripture at the synagogues, teaching the word of God that Jesus is the Messiah. But when the Jews start opposing him and insulting him, he basically turns his ministry towards non-Jews. And many people became followers of Jesus at that time. And they actually became the church community, which was now the church in Corinth. If we read from Acts chapter 18, verse 7 to 8, it says, Then he left the synagogues, and this gives us some of that backstory, and went to the home of a man called Titius Justus, who was a convert to Judaism. His house was Nochal next to the synagogue, just so by the way. The synagogue leader, Crispus, and his whole family believed in the Lord. Many Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And Paul saying, he's, he's talking, he's writing to these people. He's saying, you are the proof that I'm an apostle because you are my, you have made disciples of you. And he says, that's how I defend myself. In a sense, he's saying, even if no one else acknowledges my apostleship, at least your characteristic, your character reference should count for something. Now we move to part one of my message for today. The first part is a word to the church about how we should support those in Christian ministry, especially those in full-time Christian ministry. Have a look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, don't we have the right, he's talking about we being ministers of the gospel, don't we have the right to eat and drink? Don't we have the right to take our wives along with us, like the other apostles, the Lord's brothers, and Cephas do? Or is it only Barnabas and I who don't have any rights except to work to find work to support ourselves. Paul makes the case that those who are in full-time ministry are entitled to certain basic rights. And he lists those rights. The right to sustenance, eating and drinking, which we see in verse 4. The right to take their wives with them on mission trips, on outreaches. Apparently, according to verse 5, that is what Cephas, who was the, the Aramaic, Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter. Um, Peter and the other apostles were doing this, taking their wives with him. The right to be fully supported, which seemingly Paul and Barnabas weren't. We see that in verse 6. And then Paul does something that my wife has started to do very well. And she, my wife does this when she wants to make a point. When my wife... <laughs> When my wife wants to make a point, she does what, I suppose, what Jesus did and what Paul also does. She tries to help me understand something that I'm not understanding. Do you understand? <laughs> and how she does that, I'll give you an example. So, in the past, there was a time in our lives when I wasn't fulfilling my role as a husband. Don't say amen very loud. It makes me look bad in front of the new church. But there was a time when I wasn't fulfilling my role. So, let's say a tap broke or a light wasn't working. I'm not the most technical of people. So, I would maybe try to fix it and not succeed. And then the options are to get someone to come and fix it. Now, again, depending on the financial situation, we may or may not be able to pay someone to fix it, or I'll ask somebody to do me a favor. And sometimes it would get done, sometimes it wouldn't get done. And it was the source of problems in our marriage, because I didn't understand how important those things were to her. And then she would do a poll on me. 
she would use an analogy of something that I understand very well or something I'm passionate about. Normally it's squash. So I know if my wife talks about squash, then there's a problem. She would ask me, how come when you're struggling in squash to beat your opponent because he's cutting off all your shots, that you will be able to figure out what you need to do to beat this opponent? You know that you need to lob him, but now your lobs are not going over his head. Why are the lobs not? So she sees me going onto YouTube, finding out why are my lobs not going over my opponent's head. Oh, I'm not hitting the ball high enough on the front wall, but then it's going out. Maybe it's because I'm hitting it too hard. So I'll figure it out. And she says, how can you figure it out when it comes to squash, but not when it comes to the things that's important to me? And even when there's no money to do this stuff, you know, sometimes we can't fix the light because there's no money. But when your squash shoes break, you need new squash shoes. <laughs> then all of a sudden we're begging, borrowing, and stealing just so that we can get squash shoes. Paul does something similar to that. He tells them the story, but then he gives them a few examples to prove his point. And I'd like to use, he uses analogies from the military, he uses analogies from farming, farming crops and farming cattle. And I'd like to just read it the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. This is basically verse 4 to verse 7. He says, we are on missionary assignments for God, have a right to decent accommodations, and we have a right to support for us and our families. You don't seem to have raised questions with the other apostles about our master's brothers and Peter in these matters. So why me? Is it just Barnabas and I who have to go it alone and pay our own way? Soldiers, are they self-employed? Are gardeners forbidden to eat vegetables from their own gardens? Don't dairy farmers get to drink their fill from the pail? Basically what he's saying is, if we ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, shouldn't we then derive our income from being ministers of that gospel? And I'd like for us to get very practical as a church about our application of what Paul is teaching us here in just a minute. But I want us to see how Paul drives the point home. In verse 8, he asks another rhetorical question, implying that this idea of supporting those who minister is not just a social convention, not just a nice thing to do. There's actually spiritual significance to it. And then he quotes what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Never muzzle an ox when it's threshing grain. Now, basically, that verse means that when you've got an ox that's busy doing the work for you, some of the grain's going to fall to the ground and the ox is going to eat of it. Let the ox eat it because he's the one, this ox is the one that's doing the work. The interesting thing to note is that this is not the only time Paul quotes this Old Testament verse. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18, in a section that the, the God's Word translation actually calls the heading guidelines for dealing with other Christians, Paul says, give double honor to spiritual leaders who handle their duties well. This is especially true if they work hard at teaching God's word. After all, scripture says, never muzzle an ox when it is threshing grain. And the worker deserves his pay. In verse 10 and 11, he goes on to apply that principle. Let's just read it quickly. Isn't he speaking entirely for our benefit? This is written for our benefit so that the person who plows or threshes 
should expect to receive a share of the crop. If we have planted the spiritual seed that has been of benefit to you, is it too much if we receive part of the harvest from your earthly goods? And I love the fact that he says earthly goods because he's not just talking about spiritual blessings. It's not just saying to someone that spreads the word, God bless you, God will provide for your needs. It says there, shouldn't they receive the blessing of your earthly goods? It's almost like the message that Shelley shared a, uh, quite a few weeks ago now from 1 Corinthians 3. The lessons on the milk and the plant and the brick. Because he's saying, shouldn't we be beneficiaries of the seed that we have planted in your lives? Remember Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. Paul gives us a few more examples, but then he pulls his trump card. And to be honest, I think he's made a good, strong case already. But he decides to pull the ace out from his sleeve. As if he hasn't been convincing enough, Paul says in verse 14, In the same way, the Lord, he's talking about Jesus, commanded that those who spread the good news should earn their living from the good news. Paul himself says that Jesus directed that ministers of the gospel should receive compensation financially for their services. And here he's probably referring to Luke chapter 10 verse 7, which is when Jesus sent out the 72. Jesus said, stay with the family that accepts you. Eat and drink whatever they offer you. After all, the worker deserves his pay. And so I'd like for us to apply this section in a very real and in a very practical way. When I started here, I discovered our church has a number of pastors, missionaries, individuals and partner organizations that are actively involved in spreading the gospel in various ways. And these individuals need our support. I asked some pastors, Christian workers, what are some of the ways in which the community of the church has been the most blessing to you? One person, and this was quite striking, one person said to me, you know what the difference it made? The fact that I knew I was getting a stable income meant that I could plan for myself and for my family and I could lead my family well. Someone else said that one of the big benefits they've received from the community, the wider community of faith, is when someone has allowed us to go to their holiday home and just take a time to retreat and be restored and refreshed and renewed. Others spoke about scriptures, words of encouragement. You know those gifts that my wife spoke about that you gave us the, and we got some beautiful stuff. And when I say beautiful, not just liquor stuff, and there was a lot of liquor stuff in there. I'm needing to play some extra squash to work off some of the chocolates and the biscuits. <laughs> but there were also some very thoughtful gifts where the message you sent was tied to the gift you've given or where there was a scripture given. And my family and I are going to take time to read and to go through every single one of those scriptures as an encouragement because it encourages us to no end. Previously, we were blessed. Our car was breaking. It just wasn't working anymore. Someone actually blessed us with a car. And I know of many pastors that have been blessed in a big way like that. One year, somebody paid for our daughter's school fees for the whole year. 
And, and I mustn't forget this one, we had a couple of friends, very close friends of ours, that used to buy us toilet paper every month. When I say toilet, I'm talking like one of those big bales, 48, you know, there were 48, no? It would last us, it would last us a little bit. <laughs> we used lots of toilet paper. But it's an important thing. But it was practical. And so I would like for us to take some time this morning to pause and think, how can I be a blessing to someone who is a minister of the gospel? Hebrews tells us that we must try to make those that lead us, make their job a blessing and not a burden. Here's some practical ways, and you'll see those bullets are empty, because I'd like for you to populate that screen. What are some ways that God is saying to you, you can be a blessing? Let's start with prayer. Because even if you have nothing to give, we pray to the God that owns everything. And so pray that God would supply their every need. But let's support those who are in ministry financially as well. That's what this scripture is saying. Let's also encourage them. I shared with you about the rough time that we've been going through. I've been quite, quite honest about it. And someone asked me in last week, how are you doing? And I said, I'm taking strain. There are all these changes that's happening in our lives. The next day, and it's one of the staff here in the office, next day I come, open my office door, and under my door there's a laminated little card with a pic of a pug, you know the dog, a pug, a pug and what I'm assuming it's its owner, giving each other a high five. And the caption says, you've got this. And you'll never believe what an encouragement it was to know that someone heard that I was having a rough time and took the time to actually laminate this thing and say to me, you've got this. Send them an encouragement, a word of encouragement, a scripture. Offer to help practically. We moved last week Saturday. We had about 11, 12 people helping us move our small stuff. It was a very practical, and that's besides the moving people. It was six cars. We were just loading car after car. But it's a real practical way. Find practical ways of helping people in ministry. And then think maybe of other gifts and blessings. So I'm going to encourage you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit for a practical way that you can be a blessing to someone whose work is spreading the gospel, a pastor, a missionary, someone who works for an NPO or an NGO that spreads the gospel, a Christian worker, etc. Let's look after our pastors, our missionaries, and our Christian workers. Part two, a word to those in Christian ministry. I thought Paul did such a great job of building this argument up to this point. Then he decides to flip the script completely. After making such a firm case that whoever, those who minister the gospel, have a right to be financially supported by those they serve. Paul goes on in detail about why he refuses to receive such a benefit from the Corinthians. In verse 15 he says, I haven't used any of these rights and I haven't written this in order to use them now. In Acts chapter 18, remember that's the backstory to the church in Corinth. Listen to Acts 18 verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to the city of Corinth. In Corinth, he met a Jewish man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Aquila had been born in Pontus. And they had recently come from Italy because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to visit them. And because they made tents for a living, as he did, he stayed with them. And they worked together. Paul 
worked together with them. Second Corinthians chapter 11 verse 9. Have a listen to this. When I was with you and needed something, and again he's talking to the same church a little bit later. When I was with you and needed something, I didn't bother any of you for help. My friends from the province of Macedonia supplied everything I needed. I kept myself from being a financial burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do that. Shall we do one more? First Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9. You remember, brothers and sisters, our work and what we did to earn a living? We worked night and day so that we could bring you the good news of God without being a burden to any of you. And lastly, in Acts chapter 20, and this was quite, when I read the whole passage, it's quite an emotional speech that Paul is giving here because he's basically reflecting on his life's work. He says, if I spread the good news, I have nothing to brag about. Because, no, sorry, that's 1 Corinthians 6. Do you have Acts 20 verse 33? Otherwise, I'll just find it here. There we go. I never wanted anyone's silver, gold, or clothes. You know that I worked to support myself and those who were with me. And I have given you an example that by working hard like this, we should help the weak. Just put a pin in that one. By working hard like this, we should help the weak. We should remember the words that the Lord Jesus said. Giving gifts is more satisfying than receiving them. A word to pastors, missionaries, Christian workers. Don't become a burden to your supporters and don't become overly dependent on them. Don't become a burden to your supporters and don't become dependent on them. I must be honest, when I read this, I was confused. Does Paul want the church to be supporting pastors, missionaries, and those in Christian service? Or does he want the pastors, the missionaries, and the Christian workers to support themselves? And the answer is yes. (laughs) Paul often does this. He does it in Ephesians chapter 5. Oftentimes when I'm preaching at a wedding, I'll preach from Ephesians 5. That scripture that says, husbands, love your wives. And then the wives that are sitting in the audience will go like this to their husbands. Uh. You're supposed to love me. Then we continue reading on. And then it says, wives, submit to your husbands. And then the wives go, ah. You're supposed to be loving me. And you're supposed to, the wives are supposed to be submitting. And so then this argument ensues. And the question is, which one is it? Should the husband love the wife? Or should the wife submit to the husband? And the answer is, but who starts first though? That's my question. And that's my question to us. Who starts first? I think a clue of it is in which one of us is the strong Christian and which one of us is the weak Christian. Here's my question to you. Are you a strong Christian or are you a weak Christian? Don't answer out loud. But do answer. Because your answer is pertinent to the argument that Paul is making here. And here's where we start to get to the actual point of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And that's the third and the final part of my message, which is coming in a minute or two. Before we get to that, a final word to pastors, missionaries, and Christian workers. Paul says, 
in verse 16 and 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If I spread the good news, I have nothing to brag about because I have an obligation to do this. How horrible it will be for me if I don't spread the good news. Verse 17, if I spread the good news willingly, I have a reward. But if I spread the good news unwillingly, I am only doing what I've been entrusted. Pastors, missionaries, Christian workers, spread the gospel, spread the good news willingly. Irrespective of whether you're getting paid for it or not. Because that's what we've been called to do. Verse 18, so what is my reward? It is to spread the good news free of charge. In that way, I won't use the rights that belong to those who spread the good news. Now we come to part three, which is actually the climax, the actual point of this chapter. After everything I've said in this message, you might be forgiven if you've forgotten what chapters 8, 9, and 10 are actually about. It's actually about food. (laughs) I forgot that, Brad. I got so stuck in there. I remember, hey, Brad said something about food. Specifically, meat sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods in the pagan temples. You see, the point of this passage is that even though you are now completely free in Christ, and you are free and entitled to exercise your right to exercise that freedom, the best use of that freedom is to choose to become a slave for the sake of the ones you are trying to reach with the gospel. That's the point of the freedom. It's not freedom for freedom's sake. Look at verse 19. Although I am free from all people, I have made myself a slave for all people to win more of them. I became Jewish for Jewish people. I became subject to Moses' teachings for those who are subject to those laws. I did this to win them even though I am not subject to Moses' teachings. I became like a person who does not have Moses' teachings for those who don't have those teachings. I did this to win them, even though I have God's teachings. I'm really subject to Christ's teachings. I became like a person weak in faith to win those who are weak in faith. I have become everything to everyone in order to save at least some of them. I do this all for the sake of the good news in order to share what it offers. You see, this is the missing link that Brad was referring to in last week's message. What is your motive? Our motivation should be love. We are free to love. This is why Paul said he's obligated to spread the good news. He was willing to give up his rights because his motive wasn't to make money. We read about his motivation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He said, Christ's love compels me. And what did Jesus say about love? He said, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And what is the greatest command that there is? To love the Lord your God and to love others. And if we truly love others, we won't want to see them lost. And so we will win the lost. We will win the lost at any cost. Even if that cost is my freedom, 
I'm willing to give my freedom up so that I can win the lost. I'll become like religious people in order to win religious people. I'll become like the Greeks in order to win the Greeks. I'll become everything to everyone in order to save some of them. You know who set an example like that? Jesus. Jesus set the ultimate example for us. He became a human so that he could save humans. He became like a sinner, even though he didn't sin, so that he could save and win sinners like you and me. Philippians 2 tells us, don't act out of selfish ambition or be conceited. Instead, humbly think of others as being better than yourselves. Don't be concerned only about your own interests, but also be concerned about the interests of others. Have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Although he was in the form of God and equal with God, he did not take advantage of this equality. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by becoming like other humans, by having a human appearance. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. But this willingness to give up one's freedom isn't easy. It's actually really, really hard. And that's why most of us struggle to do it. I mean, how do you feel when someone holds to a view that's different to you? about whether we should sing hymns like we sang at 8 o'clock this morning or contemporary songs like we sang now at 10 o'clock. And even if we do, which songs do we sing? And how loud should it be? And which instruments should we be using? How do we feel when someone holds a different view to us about whether Christians are allowed to drink alcohol or not? How do we feel when people have a different view about the spiritual gifts or about women in positions of leadership? Or whether or not it's possible for a Christian to lose their salvation? Or when we're debating about how and when Jesus will return? Or should we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? <laughs> what does the Bible say? Which one is the strong person and which one is the, the weak one? And am I willing to become like that person in order not to be a stumbling block to them? And just a reminder that in Paul's case, this applied to whether he was dealing with believers or unbelievers. Does it sound hard? It is hard. You know what it's like? It's almost as hard as running a long distance race, running a marathon. It's almost as hard as fighting in a boxing match. And no one can just go and do a long distance race. Or no one can go 12 rounds in the ring without training and discipline. And so Paul says in verse 24, as we wrap things up, don't you realize that everyone who runs a race runs to win, but only one runner gets the prize? Run like them so that you can win. Everyone enters an athletic contest, goes into strict training. They do it to win a temporary crown. But we do it to win one that will be permanent. So I run, but not without a clear goal ahead of me. So I box, but not as if I were just shadow boxing. Rather, 
I toughen my body with punches and make it my slave so that I will not be disqualified after I have spread the good news to others. That discipline, that toughening of our bodies is love. The kind of love that we'll be learning about in chapter 13 in a few weeks' time. The kind of love that led Jesus to the cross. The kind of love that Isaiah says he was abused and punished, but he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was like a sheep that is silent when its wool is cut off. He didn't open his mouth. May God help us to allow the Holy Spirit to adjust our attitude to be like Jesus, who said, and this is the ultimate freedom, no one takes my life from it. I give my life of my own free will. I have authority to give my life, and I have the authority to take my life back again. This is what my Father ordered me to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and lead us in a closing song while I pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which has spoken to us so clearly today, Father. As you spoke to your church, show us how we can support and come alongside our pastors and those who are missionaries and involved in Christian service. Show us how we can work together to supply their needs, that you would use us to be a blessing to them. For those of us that are in Christian service, show us how to rely completely on you, to be dependent on you for our provision and not to be a burden, Lord. But for all of us, we pray that as we've, like the Corinthian church, come to understand the freedom we have, that that freedom would lead to an expression of love, to become all things to all people, so that we can win some for your gospel's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.